What was going to happen in that house if things got so bad that people died? You know, once you strip everything away, it's really just all you see is love. I do first want to emphasize that the goal is not to never have anxiety because you're going to have it again at some point and then you're going to feel like you failed and it's going to be a tailspin, right? Welcome to the Unlocking Happiness podcast. I'm Amy Dix, international best-selling author, speaker, and founder of Choose Happy. Collectively, our community builds a better world. I believe life is made up of moments. We have short moments, long moments, good moments, and bad moments. We make sure that all of your life moments are filled with meaning and joy. Stick around to the end of the show. We'll reveal how you can be our next guest on the internet's happiest podcast. Now let's unlock happiness. Hello, all you crazy, happy people. Welcome to Unlocking Happiness. Today on the show, we are unlocking happiness with Wendy Tamas Robbins. She is the author of The Box, an invitation to freedom from anxiety. She is lawyer by day, writer by night, and calls herself a professional panic attacker. Uh, Despite near crippling anxiety, she has worked her way through Dartmouth College and law school. And she is here today. We are going to not only unlock happiness, but talk about all the goods as well as the box. And how can we, as a society, of course, get rid of all this anxiety that we have all the time pent up. So welcome to the show, Wendy. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So, you know, I talk about like this uh, pent up anxiety. I don't know if that's the right way to say that or not, but do you feel like society as a whole generally accepts anxiety or kind of um, shames anxiety? I think if we talked about it more, it would be, um, I would say we accept it, but I think because we don't really talk about it, it's probably because we do have this sense of shame around it. Like we should be controlling our own anxiety. And when we see it in other people, then it's mirrored back at us. And there's something, there's definitely a shame trigger there. Like, why can't we just hold it all together all of the time? In your bio, it says a professional panic attacker. You know, I don't know, not necessarily does everyone have anxiety to that point. Uh, However, anxiety is a feeling that we all feel at some point in our lives. And I think that there's like different stages of it. And so I agree, like if we talk about it more and kind of make it more normal, then I think it will help a lot of people to understand not only that maybe they're, they have a little bit of anxiety, but that they can get through it, right? And like the tools to get through it. So when did you know that you kind of had this anxiety in your life and it was kind of, I don't want to say, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I don't want to say it was controlling your life, but I would guess it was controlling certain aspects of your life. Yeah, Um Eventually, it was controlling my life for sure. Uh, I had my first panic attack when I was just six. And so um, I definitely started to know that there were things wrong then. Um, But I didn't know how to, I didn't know if other people felt that way. You know, Um, I was feeling uncomfortable for sure, but didn't have the vocabulary really to share it yet and didn't know 
if it was on some level normal when other people just weren't talking about it. But then it wasn't until um, I think fifth grade when I started to have more depression and dissociation where my intrusive thoughts, things that I would get really compulsive about um, these, you know, existential thoughts as a a very young child, um, wondering where I was before I was born and where I was going after I died, things like that, that the adults couldn't answer. And so I couldn't really get out of that tailspin. That's just one example. But um, so at a very young age, I felt like there were things that were, you know, a little bit off in that I couldn't focus on school and things like that, or, or be happy and play with my friends the same way other kids did. You know, I definitely was having these dark episodes. So I think it was that early. And then as it progressed, um, you know, there were definitely, um, points that I can look back on now, especially, you know, be calling a suicide hotline when I was at an Ivy league college, you know, seemingly on top of the world and everyone else there seemed really happy to be there, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but under, you know, under the weight of that pressure and years and years of anxiety, just progressing and getting worse. Um, I was really unraveling at that point. This is really interesting. So I would say, I mean, these are pretty deep thoughts that you're having as a child. Like, where did I come from before I was born? Where do we go after death? Like, where does that come from? Where do these deep thoughts as a child come from? (laughs) I think, well, I was, I was brought up Catholic and I can only imagine that it was things that I was hearing in church. They Uh weren't conversations that we were having over dinner. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) No, but my home life was volatile and there was a lot of anxiety and untreated mental illness with my mom. Um, Mm. So I think that I became very focused on what was going to happen in that house if things got so bad that people died. And so I became very focused on, on that, like the, the fear of violence and and death and things like that, you know, very much extrapolating. They were just yelling, the fight, things like that. There wasn't real violence in the house, but um, just really bringing it and catastrophizing (laughs) at a very young age. So Yeah, maybe just a little too introspective for my age. Um, Yeah, yeah. that's so fascinating. So interesting. You know, I think these are important questions to ask. I don't think we have the introspection to at a young age to to ask ourselves those questions for the most part. Now you did, which is really interesting and fascinating, because I do think that those are important questions. That we all should ask. And I think that we ask ourselves just maybe later on in life. So that's really, really interesting. So you say your mom had mental illness. Is she still alive today? No, she passed about three and a half years ago of pancreatic cancer. Yeah. And what type of mental illness did she suffer from? So she had a lot of anxiety as well and um, probably postpartum depression as well. And then, um, you know, self-medicated over the years and unfortunately. And so it's really interesting. Um, And I write a lot about that, the trajectory of that relationship and the healing that went on after her diagnosis, especially in my book, The Box, because I think when we go through or we... um, we have that sort of childhood trauma, you know, every child deals with it in a different way, you know, their environment. And then over the years, how we, how that affects the relationship going forward and really how that, 
how seeing her be diagnosed with this terminal illness really changed what I was looking for in that relationship and, and how I saw her as a mother and what she had been capable of, you know, when I was young, you know, getting to that realization that we're all doing the best that we can with the tools that we have at the time. Right. And rather than going up and opening those wounds again and asking for an apology or something like that, like, is that really what you need? Or do we need to ourselves get to a new level of awareness that in compassion, right. For the person that is, like I said, doing the best that they can with what they've got at the time. So take us to this, to this time when she was diagnosed, pancreatic cancer is for the most part, I'd say a little bit of a death sentence um, most of the time when people get diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. So I think people are, or at least from my experience, pancreatic cancer runs just absolutely rampant throughout my family. So uh, I've seen this kind of play out a lot. And, and I think like once you get a diagnosis like this, I'm not saying you have to say, oh, that's it. <laughs> Life is over. That's not my, that's not my intention in saying this. But I think like once we accept our own death, we also change our perspective. So was your mom like realistic that she was sick, that she was going to die, that she had a very limited time on earth? Like what was her kind of demeanor at this point? Yeah. um, No, she was realistic for sure. We didn't like to say the words, but it, you know, in those spaces, when I sat with her alone, we knew like there was a knowing. And so there was an, it was almost like an invitation to go deeper and leave nothing unsaid because we really didn't know how much time she had. So in a strange way, it was like a real gift, you know, to have the time to spend versus just getting hit by a bus one day and then saying, God, we, you know, there's so many conversations I wish I had had. I really don't have that with my mother. It was really a beautiful time, um, before her passing that we got to just share so much and really heal those wounds in a, in a beautiful way. Awesome. Um, I find myself getting a little emotional just thinking about my own story, but so it sounds like you both were really open to having those kind of conversations. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, over the years, it had been more of a, a dance that we were doing to tiptoe around them, you know, and the the dance changed, like the music changed, right. The minute we got that diagnosis, it was like, Oh, okay. This is how it's going to have to be. If we really want to almost like dance your way out on a good note, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that is the best metaphor (laughs) uh, that I've ever heard anyone uh, out of all the metaphors of of anything in life. I think that that was so that was the, that's now my favorite. Uh, So tell me there was, was there forgiveness that needed to happen? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I needed to forgive, forgive her on a very deep level. I needed to forgive myself as well in that space you know, how I had interpreted it, how my childhood being, um, you know, what I was interpreting and 
how I had carried that forward and carried that sort of almost grudge, like, why weren't you doing these things that I felt like I needed? You know, um, why weren't you the mother that I had in my mind, you know? And, um, you know, just understanding why I had those feelings, why, why, you know, that that's sort of a normal state for a lot of children who go through trauma or whatever you want to call it. So there was this, there were like a few levels there for me where I just ended up seeing her as this vessel of love. And especially as she got weaker and it's interesting, like she had, um, chemo induced anorexia at the end. And our journey together was, had started early around weight loss, very early. You know, there were a lot of body image issues that I had and eating disorders. And, you know, it was really, it started with watching my mom sort of battle, you know, have that weight battle her entire life. And, it that was a big part of it was watching her shed those pounds at the end. And it kind of represented the battle that I had in my mind with her and how she had mothered me and how, you know, once you strip everything away, it's really just all you see is love. It was devastating to watch, but it was like, that was all that was left after a while. It was really important for me in how I got to that space of forgiveness to hold that for her and for myself. Yeah. How long from diagnosis to death? How long did you guys have? It was exactly four months. Mm. Yeah. Which is pretty much what they say, you know, four to six months or so. But yeah, it was, it was just before Christmas that we got the diagnosis and, um, yeah, it was the middle, it was April 25th that she passed. So, and how do you think that her passing has changed your outlook on happiness and life? Who, um, I think that she was my lifeline throughout my, you know, almost 40 year struggle with anxiety and panic attack disorders. And for so long, it was like, I would just have the phone in my hand shaking, you know, trying to call her to have that support because she was for so long, the only person that really understood how devastating it was for me because she had had it on some level. So to lose that, I was really in a point, I was at a point in my life where I felt like I was set adrift in a way, right? Like you're completely untethered now. Like you're real, you're that lifeline you've had for so long is gone. Mm. And so in my journey to finding freedom beyond my, um, my disorders, it was a big jumping off point. I, I was in sort of the midst of that journey on my own when she got diagnosed, but when she passed, it was like, you know, how much more are you going to strip it down to see if you can really survive on your own and, and continue on this journey without, you know, without that lifeline. So that was part of it, but also just healing so many of those wounds, um, was another big part of my journey so that now I don't carry that baggage anymore with me. You know, like, I feel like that weight has been lifted as well. And, I talk about in the book now, I do meditations where I really go and I sit with her at this waterfall. It was the first meditation that I ever got when I really hit rock bottom in like 
my early thirties, it was just this, they called it like a relaxation exercise. They didn't really use meditation back then. Um, and you just walk through this jungle and you walk to a waterfall and you kind of sit there and you chill out and it helps people with anxiety. Right. It seemed so simple back then, but then as I continued to do it after she passed, she ended, I just had these visions. Like she was there at the waterfall with me and she was sitting there waiting for me. And so I really go spend time with her now in that meditation. And I feel close to her, you know, on that, in that spiritual way. So it's been this really amazing connection that I've carried with me even after her passing. So that's beautiful. And you say that you've overcome anxiety and you've like found this freedom. How did you kind of, what was the ultimate thing or moment or, or that helped you kind of get through and, and overcome? Yeah. So I wish it was just a moment. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of moments. And one day, poof, it was gone. <laughs> exactly. I do first want to emphasize that the goal is not to never have anxiety because you're going to have it again at some point, And then you're going to feel like you failed and it's going to be a tailspin, right? So anxiety is an extremely essential primal response, right. To keep us alive. So that's, it's always going to be part of who we are. The important part I think is that anxiety doesn't control my life. It doesn't control what I do, how I live my life, how I think about making decisions. Whereas before I was accommodating my anxiety on a daily basis and that's what the box symbolizes. At the beginning, I was building this box to keep myself safe, to not be triggered by all of these external factors that I knew would cause a panic attack or create generalized anxiety for long periods of time. And ultimately that box became a prison, right? Like your life just gets so small and you're just restricting it by saying no, because you know that you have anxiety and that's just not an option for you. That's what I would say all of the time when met with any new opportunity or so it's really changing that mindset from a fear mindset and being focused on the triggers and the panic attacks and being afraid of all that, uh, of the, all of that negative emotion versus knowing, like you said before, knowing that you can process that emotion and live through it, right? That a panic attack is a normal fight or flight response, and you can actually live through it, that it's not going to kill you. And once I wasn't afraid of it anymore and was sort of like started my like exposure therapy, I'm going to do this knowing it's going to give me anxiety. And I'm going to just use that fear as fuel, right? Because a lot of those, a lot of those opportunities when you want to say yes, right? You can feel like it's pulling you and you're just saying no, in building up all of that resistance because the anxiety is in control at that point, right? Once you can just take back your power and say, I'm going to do it anyway, it's just moving from that fear mindset to that growth mindset. Mm. You know, it's, it was a lot of that. It was, like I said, exposure therapy, but also meditation. Um, I had never been able to meditate before because when you have anxiety or a lot of mental health issues, 
will make you feel like going into your mind is the scariest place in the world, right? It's sort of a terrifying thought to go in with all of these racing thoughts and trying to calm that down. You feel like a failure if you try. So those aren't motivating factors, right? And then I did get this one meditation from Martha Beck on a coaching call one day, who's Oprah Winfrey's life coach, a, you know, best-selling author. And it was about watching a horse run, an unbroken horse run in this ring, just round and round and round until it stopped. And she said, sit there, you know, every day for as long as it takes until that horse stops. And that was really the beginning of my meditation practice that allowed me to sit there and metabolize all of this negative energy and anxiety that had really built up for, for decades inside and watch that horse just run it out. And after like three weeks, the horse finally stopped. It was just exhausted. And what I had found was underneath all of that anxiety, I found this deep sense of peace that I never knew was there. And once I tapped into that, then I started this, you know, meditation practice because I wanted more. I wanted to discover really what that was. And then I could take it with me on the road, right? I could tap back into it when I needed to, whether I was on a plane or in a different country or in a crowded room or in traffic or whatever my triggers were, I could go back and, you know, tap into that, that piece that I had cultivated through all of that meditation. And then also my yoga practice got really pronounced when my mom was diagnosed specifically during that journey. Um, I would just sit on the mat and, and cry and really process a lot of emotion through that mind body sort of connection and, and metabolize a lot of that pain. So there were a lot of different things that I talk about in the book and kind of walk through this process, not only looking back, and using anxiety to highlight the areas that need to be healed. Like we talked about like that specific relationship with my mother, but also how to, how to not be afraid of the anxiety in the moment and start to live your life. Like, is your life expanding or contracting, right? If it's contracting, then anxiety is making those choices for you. If it's expanding, you've taken back your power and now you're moving through that anxiety, knowing it's going to be there, like I said, but knowing you can live through it. So define for us exposure therapy. So for me, it wasn't, um, I didn't do it with a therapist. I wasn't working with a therapist at, at, at the time, but so I would look for places that I knew would expose me to an anxious response, right. To a panic attack and, um, you know, specifically seek it out and do it to retrain my brain, right? You're carving new grooves, like neurotransmitters, neural pathways, all of that, right? You can really just change how your brain is um, responding in those moments if you continue to expose yourself to them. So it could be anything from, um, you know, there are big ones like sailing in a sailboat, um, obviously in a sailboat, <laughs> but I've always had a big phobia of water. I'm not a great swimmer being somewhere where, you know, you don't have a motor. You really are not in control of anything. You're not in control of the weather that's going to come. There was, there's so many factors that cause anxiety for me in that scenario, but also just driving in the rain. I mean, driving in the rain since I was 
I would say six, those were my first panic attacks were when we were in the car and it was raining and I was convinced that the ground would flood and we would all just die in that car. And those were the visions that I was having. And so even to this day to drive in the rain, I, I feel those initial triggers and I have my, you know, skills that I use to manage them and my strategies. And, but the more that I do things like that, the more that I'm completely empowered by doing them versus feeling paralyzed, you know, and thinking I can never do that again. Is there something here with water? Yeah, there's a water theme. I don't know where, no one knew where. (laughs) Something must have happened that they're not telling. I don't know. (laughs) There's a water theme. Someday it will all come together. (laughs) Right. uh, Through, I don't know, a meditation or hypnotherapy or something. And you'll be like, oh, that's it. Right. Uh, Someone once told me that, I can't remember if they were a guest on the show or what, but anyway, I think they must have been a guest on the show and, and I feel terrible. I can't give credit where credit is due here, but they said, um, we take on the trauma that our mom has because when we're in, I'm going to mess all this up probably from like a scientific perspective, but because we are in the womb for nine months, Whatever trauma our mother may have or is experiencing, we actually are experiencing as well. That's the theory. I'm throwing that out to you. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. I'm throwing that out to you to say, like, one, have you ever heard that? Two, do you think that that could be true? And how does that make you feel? I've never heard it um, specifically that way. I think that there is generational mental health that we carry on, especially if it goes untreated and then we're creating this environment that the child is growing up in, right? Then is it genetic or is it the environment because it's untreated in the parent or so it's hard to know, but to actually think that because we're in the body for nine months and kind of absorbing that, I can make that leap. I mean, (laughs) with all the the stress hormones flooding your body all the time, how would, how does the fetus not be affected by that in some way? I don't know, you know, cellularly how we're affected in that way, but um, yeah, that's interesting. And I feel like, like, how does that make me feel? I feel like there is, I do feel some connection in all of it. Like when I do do those meditations and I feel like there's, you know, if there's this long line of strong women in my family and I try and do these empowering meditations where they're imparting on me the strength that they have, you know, all of the positive things that they can bring to me, knowing that I can't even imagine what their stories coming to this country and things like that must be, must have been like, you know, and even before that being back in, you know, where my ancestors came from, I think that there's probably also negative things that if you wanted to, you know, you know, that the stress and anxiety and fear and all of that has got to be part of it too, that we're all sort of carrying forward. But I do think it's important that even if we recognize that, that we know that we can end that cycle by doing the work ourselves in some way so that there's just a lot more positive that we're sending on than negative. Yeah. So you used to rely on your mom. I don't know if rely is the right word. Uh, You used to 
utilize. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> sure. Okay. Uh, so you used to utilize uh, your mom a lot in, in kind of understanding and she was more, she was like an outlet for you. And it sounds like she still is to a certain extent through your meditations, but is there somebody who has kind of replaced that role for you today? Well, for sure. My husband, but I wouldn't call it a lifeline because I feel like that has a negative connotation. When I met my husband, I was doing the work. I had already started, um, you know, the beginning stages of trying to find freedom from this, from my anxiety. And, but I would say I was still in the box. I was still sort of testing my boundaries, understanding where they were, why I had built these walls. And he was a huge part of, and that relationship has been a huge part of really taking that leap to find my way to the other side. And, you know, a lot of it was exposing myself to loving other people fully and being, you know, accepting love from people, finding that connection. And I think that that was something that happened with my mom too, at the end was being able to give and receive mm. love on a different level, like really making a deep connection that was never available before with all of that anxiety and that static getting in the way and all of those walls built between me and everyone else, right? The walls that we build with perfectionism and people pleasing and all of that. So now, as I was, as I was doing that exposure therapy and things like that, like he, in part of that is exposing yourself to the vulnerabilities of, of loving, right. Loving on a deep level. That's a big part of exposure therapy or was for me having him be there and not saying I'm a lifeline for you. Like you can, you know, call me for this or that that's sort of like obvious. Yes. Like a partner is going to do that for you, but it was really on a much deeper level that, that he just supported me in a way that was unconditional love. And I will help you carry the weight of this because I'm here to hear all of it. As crazy as it may sound to you, I like expose all of your deepest, darkest secrets that you have felt look too broken to other people to expose. Right. And I will love you anyway. Like that's a different kind of lifeline to me. Right. So yeah. that, that's really, that really is like lifeline 2.0, you know, that <laughs> took, that took my healing to a different level. So I think that's, that's the replacement. Awesome. I love that. Okay. So one last question. It's the same question I ask all my guests. It's a two part question. The first part of the question is, if you only had seven more days left to live, what would you do? Seven? Seven. I would find every person in my life that I love and hug them really hard and tell them exactly how I felt. And then I think I would travel somewhere that I've never been. That, um, yeah you know, with, with all of the people that, that I want to be surrounding me at that time. The second part of the question is if you only had seven more days left to live, but you were in a debilitated state, so you couldn't travel. Uh, and all we had left was your voice. What is the last bit of advice that you want to give the world? Um, that it doesn't have to be that hard that, you know, no matter how we think we 
um, need to show up in order to protect something that we're afraid of losing, um, that we can really let go of that and just love. Perfect. Wendy, thank you so much for unlocking happiness with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Amy Dix here. Thank you so much for listening to Unlocking Happiness. I hope you loved the show. And if you did, post a link to your social media, tag a friend, and hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts. Help spread more happiness in the world by leaving us a review. If you would like to learn more about what we do, visit choose-happy.me. And if you want to be a future guest, click on the podcast tab to learn more. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag Unlocking Happiness with Amy Dix. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and hit subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean the world to me and my team. Want to know more? Go to our website, choose-happy.me or join our Facebook group called The Happiest Group on Facebook. Thanks for listening. This is Amy Dix, and we will see you next time.